Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you so much for joining us again this week on the program. I trust that you've been tuning in every week and watching us at the same time. And uh, your cards, your letters, your emails to us telling us which station you are watching on uh, have been a great help to us in uh, deciding which networks we will remain on. And uh, uh, if you are watching this, we probably have remained on your network. So we thank you for those cards, those letters, and uh, all of the things that you've done to write. We deeply are grateful also for your support and your partnership. Uh, you know, I think sometimes many have written in and thought, well, you know, what we are able to give is just so small, but we are so thankful because the small is what really keeps us going. It's almost like the fragments that Jesus took up after he broke the bread to the fed the 5,000. So uh, never feel like uh, it's insignificant because your seed helps us to reach an incredible amount of people. Uh, let me also say to you that if you've missed any of our programs, you can go back to uh, our YouTube page and you can watch anything that we have aired to date. It is archived there on our YouTube page, and you can be blessed by watching that on demand. Also, you can go to our podcast on iTunes and sign up, and it's a great way to redeem time when you're in traffic or you're commuting to and from work or you're traveling somewhere. Uh, you can listen to the podcast stream through your automobile or, or whatever uh, because the audio portions are there for you to watch and to enjoy. Um, uh, if you go to our website, of course, there's a direct link from our website to our YouTube page and to our iTunes podcast. Just simply go to lynnhiles.com, and uh, the website has been completely revamped, and uh, our new book is also listed there, and just a whole lot of new products. Our itinerary is also on our website. Visit the website and come see us somewhere. We love it when our television audience comes and meets us in some of the locations where we are traveling. We travel all the time. We preach someplace different uh, every week, just about, and uh, uh, we're just blessed when you come up and tell us, look, we thank you, or we appreciate you, or, you know, uh, we're watching your program, and it's touched our lives. That's really an encouragement to us, and I can't tell you how valuable that is to us that you do that. Uh, I want to get into the Word again today and just talk with you a little bit about some things that have been on my heart, and I'm, I'm going to go first of all to uh, the book of Daniel, chapter number one, and I want to just kind of deal with some, I think, practical things in this particular uh, set of uh, um, of, of uh, uh, footage that we're shooting for the next couple of weeks. We'll unpack this and and uh, just share with you some thoughts the Lord gave me. Uh, but I'm just going to begin reading in uh, verse number one of book of Daniel, chapter one. It says, "In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of." Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Asphenes, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning in the tongue of the Chaldean. And the king appointed them 
a daily provision of the king's meat of wine, which he drank. So he nourished them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now, before I go too far into this, I want to just kind of, uh, I want to go back to, I believe it is the, the second book of Chronicles, and show you why uh, they are in this captivity. And, uh, you know, a lot of times when you're reading the Bible, uh, we read because we don't, uh, the books of the Bible aren't necessarily in chronological order. They're booked together like with the, you know, the poetic books and the prophetic books and the major and minor prophets that sometimes we don't realize that men like Daniel, uh, men like uh, Zechariah, men like, uh, you know, uh, these prophets were contemporaries uh, with the people that were in captivity uh, in the first, you know, in the, when the siege of Jerusalem was taking place under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And so we don't put together like books like uh, the Chronicles, or we don't put together the books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job, uh, or Esther, I'm sorry, not so much Job, but we don't put those books together with the contemporaries of the people that are uh, uh, necessarily in that particular time slot together. So, you know, when you read, for instance, the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and some of those guys, you know, it will talk about, they will start saying the first year of this king, uh, you know, uh, the word of the Lord came to them. So you could kind of go back and see which king. I really think that context and audience relevance will help us understand a whole lot of things. And I don't want to start out by being too awful controversial here, but really even books of Ezekiel where they talk about, you know, uh, about the children of Israel returning back to their homeland and the rebuilding of their temple. Uh, many take those things and make them eschatological like they're somewhere out in our distant future, when in reality those scriptures were absolutely fulfilled in the reign of the times of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther when you see them actually come back out of exile and rebuild the temple of God. Now, overtones are always in those scriptures as well because many of the scriptures that you see, especially in Zechariah and Isaiah and some of that, he will begin to talk about the fall and catastrophes of, uh, you know, that would come upon the great city of Jerusalem and they would be patterns for what was coming in AD 70 and he would use, he would, he would use that kind of terminology and language and then you would see them come to pass then uh, in the New Testament where, for instance, like uh, the Apostle Peter would stand up and say, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So you see uh, these uh, New Testament writers absolutely quote scriptures that put it in the context of that first century church and stuff that would have relevance to them in the establishment and rebuilding, not so much of a physical city, but of a spiritual house and, if you will, a new Jerusalem, which we have dealt with over the period of time. Go back and watch some of our archive stuff. It's not talking about a physical rebuilt temple in the Middle East, but it's talking about the community of faith. It's talking about the bride, the lamb's wife. It's talking about uh, the fulfillment of what Hebrews, the 12th chapter says, for you have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. Uh, but uh, as I, uh, before I set the stage here, even dealing with the book of Daniel, we're going to take a look back at this Babylonian captivity. Because in the 36th chapter of 2 Chronicles, this is the Chronicles of the Kings, he's going to tell you why they've been carried away captive uh, 
by the Babylonians. So this is the, the context. It was Nebuchadnezzar who, of course, carried them away. And if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 36, uh, we'll just start in, um, you know, verse 18. And it says, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Now, if you remember, I just got finished reading you almost that exact same wording in the book of Daniel, that the king Nebuchadnezzar had carried away their treasures and carried them back to the house of his God. And so they burnt, and they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years, or if you will, seventy years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he, might, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord given, uh, 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 hath the Lord God of heaven given me. Now, I don't want to go back into the king of Persia. What I'm after is that there are some principles that I want to draw from uh, this, uh, this, first of all, this carrying away into captivity. A lot of powerful things could be said, but in verse 21, it tells you why. It says, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath as long as she lay desolate. She kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. So uh, one of the things that I want to make a parallel with, I want to show you that first of all, historically, this happened during this period of time in Chronicles when Nebuchadnezzar had seized them. I also want to jump forward and show you how that uh, we can be in Babylonian captivity again because uh, of our understandings of, uh, I'm going to talk about Sabbath here in just a moment, but let me just say before I do that, that I'm not talking about a certain day of the week, but we'll get to that. But what I want to show you is that Babylon in the book of Revelation, I believe is first of all, finds its fulfillment in apostate Israel during the final days of the siege of Jerusalem. Again, it was the, the, the pattern of these scriptures that happened under uh, Daniel and happened under these kings and, and these people during this period of time were a pattern for the destruction of Jerusalem again in AD 70. And that was the great Babylon, the harlot city that had once again uh, played harlotry and had committed adultery with other foreign gods. So one of the key things that brought them into captivity, first of all, was their idolatry and their worship of foreign gods. And the king of Babylon had brought them into captivity. Now from that, I want to springboard and talk about that all of the, uh, you know, of course, there's a lot of different views about who the harlot is of the book of Revelation. And I'm not going to take a bunch of programs to prove again my I thought that I've already, you know, established back when we were teaching on Revelation, and they are, by the way, archived. We did a chapter by chapter teaching on the book of Revelation on the program, and you can go back and watch them and see why we believe Babylon was a picture of, uh, uh, that that was the terminology that was used to identify apostate Israel in Jerusalem in AD 70 when it was finally destroyed again in siege. Much of the language that he used about them, uh, you know, uh, 
the siege of uh, Jerusalem, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, even when he talks about they will look upon the bodies of the slain where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, is where he's talking about uh, them looking on the bodies of those that were, that were destroyed during this period of time. And he springboards and uses that as a, uh, uh, as a picture of what would happen in the fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem again, because that's exactly what happened again, is they would look upon the bodies of those that were slain, and they literally stacked them up to the heavens, and the maggots and the worms were eating them because they didn't have enough time to, to bury them all, and they were burning them with fire outside the city in a place called Gehenna until uh, their worm died not in the fire and should not quit. He was talking about the siege that would come upon Jerusalem uh, during A.D. 70. Though I'm after a little bit more than that today is not to be eschatological or historic, but to show you that when I think about the Sabbath, here in Second Chronicles chapter 36, it says, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. The moment I think about the Sabbath in the New Covenant, <clears throat> I begin to realize that the Sabbath is more than just a day of the week. It is a person. In Colossians chapter 2, he tells us, let no man judge you in respect to a new moon or a Sabbath or a uh, holy day, which things were only a shadow. The reality, however, was found in Christ. In other words, the Sabbaths and the holy days were pictures of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So when I think about keeping Sabbath, I'm not simply talking about, uh, you know, just taking a nap on Sunday. Uh, and I, I know I'm probably going to get a lot of different mail about it. You, you could, uh, you know, kind of save your time. Uh, I've already looked into a whole lot of that kind of stuff about the Sabbath. I'm not interested in the debate over which day of the week that you worship. What was really being pointed out here was that God was offering them a rest. I think it's incredible, even as God gives them the law in the Old Testament, when he gives them the commandments, excuse me just a moment, but when God gives them the commandments, you know, he's like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt have no graven images. And even in the last uh, few of the commandments, he says, and honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's kind of like God says, he's showing them his heart even in the midst of when he's giving them laws. And uh, he says, you know, oh, by the way, you know, take a day off from work uh, once a week. I'm not like the gods of the Egyptians that's going to make you serve seven days a week, uh, you know, 24-7. He said, take a rest. In other words, God made the Sabbath to bring us into a rest. Now, we know that in the New Covenant, that rest is more than just a uh, certain day of the week where you take a nap. And I'm certainly not against the fact that we ought to have a day off from work. But what he's saying here is, see, to me, the rest of God, entering into God's rest and ceasing from your labor, uh, Hebrews 4 talks about it. And it says that, that we need to enter into that rest because there remains a rest for the people of God. But you don't get people to rest by preaching rest. You get people to rest by showing them how the work got finished. And what I want to draw a parallel to in this particular series of, of teachings is that the finished work of Jesus Christ is what brings us into this incredible rest. When you preach what Jesus has already done, that the work of Calvary did for us what we could not do for ourselves. When Jesus leaned back and cried, it is finished. Uh, I'm telling you, it was finished. The work was finished. Now, the scripture tells us in Hebrews 4 that we need to labor to enter into that rest. 
And I used to think, well, that means we need to just work real hard, get the work done so we can enter into rest. But if you look at John's gospel, the disciples ask Jesus, what must we do to work the works of God? See, the question is, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So the work of the new covenant is simply entering into believing God by faith because the moment you believe that the work was finished is the moment you enter into rest. It's when you cease from your labor and you realize that it's not by works or labor or human sweat, but it is by the person and work of Jesus Christ and entering into what he did that I was crucified with Christ, that I was buried with him, that I'm, you know, I died with him. I'm, I'm, I'm quickened. I've been raised and I'm right now seated with him. So it is coming into an understanding of a faith that lets us embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ because, see, they are carried away into captivity. We are only carried away into religious Babylonian confusion, captivity, when we cease to abide and live in the finished work of the Sabbath rest of God. Uh, my first, well, not my first book, but actually it was my third book titled Unforced Rhythms of Grace, and I would encourage you to order that book online. But what I do in that book is I show you how that every one of the miracles, not every one of them, but a great deal of the miracles that Jesus did, he did them on the Sabbath day. Now, there's a, there's a powerful point behind that. It's not just that he was trying to violate their religious rules, but what he was trying to show you is, listen, religion will keep you in bondage. But when you come into a rest of God, he began to say, listen, the Sabbath was not made, or uh, the man was made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath, or the Sabbath was made for the man, not the man for the Sabbath. In other words, this, this Sabbath was for you to enter into a rest. In other words, everything that Jesus did was so that it could bring you into a rest. Now, that doesn't mean you become a spiritual couch potato. It simply means that when you really begin to believe what Jesus already did, not only for you, but as you, you will begin to live out of a faith rather than out of work. See, I think a very important piece that's missing in a lot of grace teaching is the aspect of faith. It is by grace through faith, and um, and 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 uh, you know, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. But the faith to believe. In other words, when I really believe, I was crucified with Christ then I'm going to quit trying to, if you will, die to self. That's really an old covenant concept. Uh, you were crucified with Christ. You say, well, Paul says uh, in, in the scriptures that I die daily. But the context of that has nothing to do with you dying to your old man. The scripture also tells you you were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So uh, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So uh, what Paul was talking about is I, I face physical death every day in the arenas and in the prisons and among false brethren and perils of the sea and on and on he began to talk. And so he's talking about that was the kind of uh, death he was facing on a daily basis. Now, let me say this to you because this is the balance of it. The application of the fact that you were crucified with Christ is that when you believe that, you're going to act out of a, uh, an understanding that you already have a fellowship, a koinonia with his suffering. In other words, his death was my death. And the more you feed on that, and the more you uh, believe that, and we're going to kind of get into maybe some of that as we go down through here, because one of the things that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in the book of Kings is they refused 
to eat the king's meat. I call it Babylonian baloney. And I believe that the key thought in some of the things I'm going to share over the next couple of weeks is, is that what you feed on is what produces the kind of life you have. You are what you eat, if you will. And so uh, what we feed on is really important. If we feed on the finished work of Jesus, if we enter into the Sabbath, then we're not going to find ourselves in Babylonian captivity. I hope you're following my thinking on this as I'm trying to bring it into a spiritual uh, view of uh, how that our, this, this, uh, uh, you know, this Babylonian works-based uh, control, manipulation stuff that I believe is a religious system that is a product of uh, carrying old covenant paradigms over into the new covenant. See, you know, if, if the harlot of the book of Revelation was apostate Israel and Judaism that was about to fade off of the scene, then, uh, you know, uh, the, she was the mother of harlots. Of course, there's a whole lot of harlot systems since then, but they are all flowing from some type of religious confusion. And our biggest problem is that we perish for a lack of knowledge. That's one of the things I really want to, sh you know, as I'm sharing these things is that, you know, a revelation of Jesus to you will produce a revelation of Jesus through you. And the more you feed on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the more you're going to be able to enter into this Sabbath rest of God. And you're going to be able to say, listen, I'm trusting him to do what he's, first of all, I'm believing that what he, he said he did, he did. And out of that, I'm flowing. And then the reality of it is, is that any of the work that needs to be done, it's the Spirit of God at work in us. It is God himself doing the work, both to will and to do of his own good pleasure. It's trusting the Holy Spirit to do the work in your life. It doesn't mean you become a spiritual couch potato. It just means you begin to live out of the faith of what you believe. It's like the, the scripture says, the just will live by faith. And so if you really believe you're just, you will act like you're, you're just. That's why I believe it's important to preach, uh, you know, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Because if you enter into this righteousness by faith, in other words, if you believe you're righteous, you will act like you're righteous. That's why I believe one of the, uh, one of the powerful works of the Holy Spirit in the, in the, I believe it is in the Gospel of John. I believe it's the 12th chapter, but I'm not absolutely positive of the place where it is. But he said the work of the Holy Spirit is simply this. He will, number one, convict the world of sin because they believe not. So if you're an unbeliever, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict and convince you of sin so that you would realize, I need a Savior. So that's the first dimension of the work of the Holy Spirit. But the second dimension of the work of the Holy Spirit is very rarely ever preached. And that is, he will, convict the, uh, he will convict us of righteousness. Jesus said, I will convict you of righteousness because I go to the Father. So uh, very seldom is it ever preached that the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is not just to convince and convict you of sin. That happened when you were an unbeliever. But once you become a believer, the work of the Holy Spirit is not to convince you of sin or to convict you of sin is to convict you of righteousness. Now stay with me for a moment. What's that mean? It means if I'm convicted of righteousness, then I believe I'm righteous that I'm not going to sin anymore. But see, the conviction is, is, in other words, if you're constantly trying to convince people they are sinners and that they, you know, that they're, you know, that that's who they are, they're going to keep on acting like that's who they are. Holy Spirit said to me a number of years ago, it's probably been 25 years or better, 
on my way to Florida to preach a meeting. He said, you've got to decide who you're going to preach to. You're either going to preach to the old man, Adam, and try to modify his behavior, or you're going to preach to the new creation and develop and mature a new man. And so if you're going to uh, preach to an old man, you're going to have to preach an old covenant and an old law. And you know what? You can preach an old covenant and you can get people to behave because the law can change behavior. But see, grace will change the heart. And when you really begin to change the heart, then people don't do it because they have to. They do it because they've had a heart change. It's because they've come to a fresh identity. And so as the work of the Holy Spirit convicts you and convinces you that you are a new creation in Christ and that you are the righteousness of God, uh, then what happens is when you become convicted that you're righteous, you will act like you're righteous. Uh, I, I think people misunderstand the whole point when we say, well, he's, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant is not to convict believers that they're sin sinners. It is con to convict them that they're righteous, but it's out of that faith of their righteousness that they begin to live according to what they believe. In other words, what you really believe is what you act on. And, uh, you know, uh, in other words, if I believe that this building I'm in is going to blow up in the next 15 minutes, I'm going, I'm going to cut these cameras off and get out here as fast as I know how, if I really believe that. But see, there's a whole lot of stuff that people preach that they don't really believe. And I, I come back to this again because I think this is, again, uh, goes along with what I'm saying about uh, your spiritual diet and eating Babylonian beans. Because sometimes when you, you are fed on Babylonian diet that confuses you, you lose your identity. And we will get into some of that probably in the next segment. Because if I said to you, Michelle, uh, I said to you, uh, Azariah, and I said to you, uh, Michelle, most of you would say, I don't know who that is. But if I said to you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'd say, oh, that's the three Hebrew children. That's because they answered to their Babylonian name when the first three names I gave you was their Hebrew names. But the longer you are in Babylonian religious confusion, the more it will steal your identity. And so what I want to do is reiterate and begin to build people up until they become what I call believers. We used to sit, you know, in church, and, and, and I, get, I appreciate my roots, but we've come a long way in our understanding. And people say, well, what do you all believe up at that church? I say, well, we don't believe, you know, that, you know, and I'd start naming all the stuff we believe was sin. I don't believe that, you know, at that time, everything you can imagine was a sin. We say, well, I don't believe women ought to cut their hair. I don't believe men ought to wear short sleeve shirts. I don't believe you ought to go to the movies. I don't believe you ought to do this. I mean, everything was a sin back then. But the reality of it is, is while I was standing there telling somebody that one day, I realized, you know what? I, I, I'm not telling people what I believe. I'm telling them what I don't believe. I have sat right in church and become an unbeliever because they never taught me anything to believe. But in the new covenant, I want to teach you that you're the new creation. I want to teach you who you are because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and bring you into a fresh identity that produces a faith and you will become what I call a believer. <laughs> and when you believe into righteousness, see then, <coughs> excuse me, the third dimension of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince and convict you of judgment. That judgment is not in your future, but that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the judgment God had on you. He, he drew all judgment into himself on the cross. He was wounded for your transgression and bruised for your iniquities, and the chastisement for your peace was on him. We're about out of time, so I, I just want you to take a moment to write to us or call the number on the screen. If you can sow a seed into the ministry to help us, it will be greatly and deeply appreciated. Tell 
your friends about us. Share this on your Facebook page. Help us get the word out. I think uh, that if you do that, that helps us to get the gospel around the world. But tune in again next week as we continue this series that we're teaching from the book of Daniel. And I do believe you will be blessed. God bless you for watching today. I'm very excited to announce the release of my newest book. It is titled From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. In this book, we talk about how the gospel is not about a law you have to keep. It is about receiving a life that will keep you. It is not about living this life out of fear. It is about living a life of faith. It is not about rules. It's about a relationship with a loving father. It is about moving from the old covenant government of condemnation to the new covenant government of affirmation. It is about living life as a citizen of the kingdom right now.